when you have assignments like a quiz and you are asked to work on these by yourself and without any external help, uh, we mean that. That's an engineering professor at Purdue University in a recent video lecture to his students. He's having to say this patently obvious point that students should do their own work during a quiz because during the pandemic, professors at Purdue are seeing a spike in student cheating. Joseph Ching, a junior there, says several professors are warning students not to turn to homework help sites, where students are posting specific questions from tests in a way that other students can see the answers and just copy them. Usage of these sites for cheating has skyrocketed since the pandemic, and it's driving professors crazy. Joseph said he would never use one of those sites, but he can understand the lure this semester. Since everything is online, it's a lot more challenging to meet people and form study groups. Welcome to the EdSurge podcast, a weekly look at how education is changing. I'm Jeff Young, a reporter here at EdSurge. This week, we continue our semester-long series taking you inside college life during the pandemic. And our main focus this episode is what studying and tests are like this semester, when teaching is strained by safety measures like plexiglass barriers and masks in the classroom. And that's when it's in person. Online classes now are being taught by professors who often have little experience in the format and are clearly struggling to figure out what works. Are students even learning? This is episode four of our Pandemic Campus Diaries series, meaning we have been following these same professors and students for a couple months now. And we're learning how complicated campus life is during the pandemic. If you haven't already heard those first three episodes, I recommend you pause now and go binge those before you go further. And if you have been listening, let me remind you that we left a couple of our diarists in dramatic moments. Josh Friesen, the freshman at Syracuse University, had just gotten a COVID test, along with every other student at the university, to see how well Syracuse is containing the virus. How did that turn out? Marjorie Blen, the first-generation student that we're following at San Francisco State, had just found out that her college will continue online-only in the spring. She has been frustrated by the online-only format, and so now she's considering taking some time off from her studies. And David Peña Guzman started playing in some volleyball matches to improve his work-life balance that everyone was reflecting on last episode. But he worried that that would get suspended because everyone just couldn't stop giving high fives and violating COVID restrictions. Can the gym stay open to help him stay sane? But let's start with what studying and homework look like for Joseph at Purdue. I'm finding that I'm studying mostly by myself and I'm not able to ask someone if for help and how they think and how they approach the problem. And yeah, it's definitely something that I'm missing, just that kind of collective suffering that you go through when you're working through problems, that, that sense of camaraderie that's, that's missing. And I, I never really appreciated that or felt like that was something I needed until now, where I, I just really miss studying with others. And I feel like I don't really have that many connections with people in my classes. It's hard to meet people new in my classes. The only people that I know in my classes are people that I've met in previous classes. And it's usually just one or maybe no none people. Like there's there's no one. So he has tried working in the library or in the common room on his floor, 
But everything is just more solitary this year, with masks and social distancing. And he finds that he needs help, this semester more than ever before, because classes aren't always giving him the learning he needs to actually do his homework. The quality of the live synchronous sessions uh, online are, are very, is really poor. Like, there's things that you can't really capture virtually. So things like, you know, if you have a great lecture, like the charisma, the audience feedback, that's just, it's just not there. So it makes it really hard to watch 50 minute to an hour or more long videos. It's, it's just really difficult. Sometimes I have to speed it up or um, you know, skip sections. So that's not for a benefit for me because I might be missing something. And he's clearly not alone, which is why the use of homework help sites is soaring. The study service site that comes up the most is Chegg. It aims to help students when they're stuck on a homework problem. Subscribers can put out a question to the service and someone else answers it in a step-by-step way that's meant to be educational. Of course, it's also easy for students to just write down the answers that these sites give without doing any thinking or learning. One of the things that I've gotten a lot of emails about from professors is the use of Chegg. Chegg is not good for for you. It is it is a means for you to put something down on a piece of paper, but it's not something from which you can actually learn. That's the engineering professor that we heard from at the top of the show. He spent a few minutes about this at the beginning of his class recently. And one of the main arguments he made against this misuse of the services wasn't based on morality, but about whether this kind of cheating would actually be effective. And a very practical aspect about Chegg is that Chegg is not always right. If you copy from Chegg right off of the screen, you likely were going to get it wrong. And it's going to be quite obvious that you have used Chegg. Where the issue lies is that people are posting homeworks, quizzes, exam questions to Chegg, working out the solutions and sometimes doing this in real time. And obviously this is, isn't good for people that are doing it uh, by themselves and you know, honoring the, the system and everything like that. When professors grade on a curve, which they often do in engineering classes, then the more people who get away with cheating, it can bring down grades of students working honestly and getting more things wrong. So this might actually bring down Joseph's grade. This problem with students turning more to the web to just copy down answers isn't just at Purdue. At Texas State, Rachel Davenport is seeing it too. She's a biology lecturer who is one of our diarists, and this semester she's also the interim chair of the honor committee that handles complaints about academic dishonesty. Yes, and and my impression is that it's coming up really everywhere right now. All of my colleagues from graduate school are scattered across the country at different universities. They're all finding it too. Um, If you go onto academic uh, posts online, it's happening everywhere. We're seeing um, a lot more honor code violations come up in general, but especially because of these online platforms like Chegg.com, Course Hero. It started in the spring, just after classes shifted online due to the pandemic. The committee saw the number of honor code cases nearly double. 
I reached out to Chegg, and sure enough, business is booming. Students pay a subscription of $14.99 a month to get access to Chegg Study, which promises step-by-step textbook solutions for 9,000 books and, quote, to search millions of homework answers. The company argues that its policy clearly states that students should not use the site for cheating. On its website, it says that, quote, the vast majority of Chegg students use our services to help them learn and understand. We don't tolerate abuse of our platform or services. And so we are putting in extra measures in place to monitor it. That's Mark Boxer, a spokesman for Chegg. So that includes um, we're hiring more teams, We're constantly working to improve our algorithms and way we look for keywords or content that's not supposed to be there. I know you have the honor code up there, but like, uh, what what is your answer to like a frustrated professor who might just think like, isn't your business model to get students to cheat? Yeah. So first of all, Chegg is used by millions and millions of students. We're a public company. We're global. And we offer a suite of uh, services. So, you know, the idea that you could build a multi-million dollar business off cheating is either cheating is a way bigger problem than we think, or um, that is not in any way what Chegg is designed to do or built to do. And, And the reason is because we invest so much in the way we actually instruct students. So, for example, um, when you go to Chegg with a query, you get a step-by-step instructional uh, explanation written by a subject matter expert that we vet and employ uh, or or contract, I should say, to actually give that information to you, right? What we don't do, which some other platforms do do, is things like peer-to-peer sharing. You can upload a whole paper or we can encourage professors to upload a whole paper that you can then access. So we, we have a very clear philosophy on expert-backed content that's high integrity that's there to learn. He kept stressing this point, that students have to put in requests for answers, question by question, rather than uploading a whole quiz. But still, question by question is just a technicality, right? Like, everybody's got, they can still do it. I actually disagree. Um, It's individualized. We switch off cut and paste processes. If you were to get a, let's say, a 50-question exam, and you were to try and use Chegg to answer 50 questions or even 20 questions or five questions, it would be an incredibly laborious, difficult process. I think the the concern is whether they're helping with a direct question that is on a graded assignment. That's Rachel Davenport again, the Honor Committee Chair at Texas State. So I don't, I don't think faculty in general have an issue with students finding tutors. Um, and so reaching out and saying, I'm having trouble with this topic or this concept. Can you talk me through it? Or even posting and saying, here's the answer I came up with, or here's the right answer. I already know it, but I'm really having trouble how to get there. That's great. I think most of us really want students to get that kind of help. I, I hope they're reaching out to us, but if they feel uncomfortable or we're not available or we're not doing as much as they need, I don't think that's an issue. And and I think that's great that they have resources. The difficult part is um, when students are then taking graded questions from homeworks or exams, uh, just posting them up, getting the answer, and then just using that answer as theirs instead of doing the work themselves. From what I've seen in the last probably six or eight months, the most common thing is a student will post a graded question in its entirety to chegg.com. 
Uh, and then a quote-unquote tutor from somewhere in the world will answer it correctly or incorrectly. And then that student who asked it will copy and paste it or use that answer in their own graded assignment. But also problematic is that anyone with a Chegg account can now see the question and answer. So only one student might have asked the question, but a hundred students might have accessed it and used the answer. So it's really hard to tell unless you can get a report from Chegg. It's really hard to tell who posted the question and who accessed the answers. That means part of grading for professors during the pandemic is checking on the internet to see if their exact homework or quiz question is sitting out online, answered, on any of these services for anyone to copy. And if so, to file a laborious process to request that it gets taken down. I was very lucky. On my most recent exam, I did not find any violations when I searched online. But in my lab on written assignments, I actually did find a few. Um, And those, although it's not that I told them explicitly, don't use Chegg, what I did say is this has to be in your own words. And so some of them copied and pasted from Chegg, which is a violation because that's plagiarism. And then the other interesting thing is because our lab, the answers are so dependent on the results, the answers that the Chegg tutors gave were incorrect. And so the students ended up getting zeros on those portions anyway. So that's a professor's perspective on cheating this semester. It sounds like a game of whack-a-mole. But students are seeing this very differently. For instance, Elena Anaya Chong, a student at Texas State we've been following this semester, said she is currently struggling with her economics class. And she is tempted to turn to Chegg. Not to cheat, but to get the help she isn't getting from her professor. Uh, for example, I did have questions on how to solve one of like my economics homework. And they did like offer it on check, but I didn't use it because one, you have to pay for it. So the, and the second of all, it's like, maybe, like it's better for me to like solve it on my own. But like for, it's difficult to do it because like for me, for like that economics homework, there's nobody else on campus but the professor that can help out. Like I went to like the Slack center, that's where they offer tutoring. And then uh, I have like, I'm part of another program that gives out tutors uh, for free. And none of them uh, say that they feel confident teaching me uh, like uh, that class, that economics class. So it's like, do I, I might need to like, um, what is it called? Like go to like check and maybe like check out the problems, how they solve because they do, explain in a step-by-step what you have to do. Until the pandemic hit, Elena loved economics. And she was even thinking of changing her major to it. But this semester, it feels almost impossible to understand. She actually sent me a meme that's been going around on social media that captures how she feels in general. The original tweet's in Spanish, but it translates as, You look tired. Yeah, I'm teaching myself five college classes. But Elena is persistent. As she described this one econ homework and what she's doing about it, it feels like she's on this epic quest to figure it out. Uh, The professor had office hours this Monday, so I was like, oh, you know what, maybe it's a good idea for me to hop in and ask for his help. Uh, The first time it was really helpful because um, I was very lost. I had no idea how to start solving these problems. He gave me an insight on how to solve uh, the first one and the second problem. 
And uh, when actually when we went to class that uh, afternoon, uh, one student actually asked him like, hey, uh, could you tell us how to like start doing this homework? Because uh, we didn't understand how to do it. So I felt like such a relief that I was not the only one struggling with this homework. Um, but uh, the professor cannot like... Uh, did not like that because, of course, classes for learning new things and not going over what he already explained. Uh, nevertheless, we are in a very different environment than if we would have, like, in that we would have been during normal conditions. And even after she went to the professor for help, there was one part she still couldn't figure out. I was doing some economics homework, and I just got too frustrated with myself that because I couldn't do it and like. Uh, uh, like the professor thinking, uh, I was just like trying to get his help for him to solve the problems. That was not it. I was just, I'm just very lost. Uh, and I'm just trying to do my best during these times. And, uh, uh, I just like literally started crying out of frustration and stress. I wish that, uh, professors understood this and, um, like, uh, realize that these are hard times for everybody and uh we're not trying to like slack or anything i feel like a lot of us were still trying to learn despite the circumstances but it's just harder with what is happening many professors are working harder in this format to make sure students are keeping up and many are being more forgiving when it comes to deadlines while i probably um overall tend to be lenient anyway with deadlines and whatnot. Um, I'm trying to be even more so because students are struggling. That's Deb Nichols, a professor at Purdue. I've had several students say I haven't been able to do anything and I don't know if I should withdraw or drop the course. And and so I generally try to um, ask them what they might need um, for support, or if I know, you know, what some of the other classes they're taking are, and if I know who, you know, that those classes are a little bit less flexible with deadlines, I'll say, you know, focus on getting caught up in those classes, and then we'll come back to this and figure out what we can do to try to catch you up. And not every student is struggling. For Josh Friesen, a freshman at Syracuse University, professors have been so lenient he feels it's kind of a breeze. My homework load itself is not that large at all. I think my workload is actually smaller than it was in high school, probably because of the online format and how chilled most of the teachers are with all of this. But, you know, I won't really know that until I'm in full in-person classes so I can, like, compare. But I'm definitely not complaining about a lower workload than in high school. We heard something similar from Natalie Ricciardi, a senior at Chapman University. Her classes are all online this semester. I was really surprised to find out that my workload outside of class would mostly consist of reading the textbook and studying for quizzes. In the past, I had homework every single day, and it always felt like even if I wasn't in class, I was doing eight to three, or at least an equivalent amount of hours to get things done. But now it feels like a lot less actually, which is 
sort of nice, but at the same time, it's been really difficult to create good study habits because I'm doing class from my apartment and, you know, there are some days I don't leave my apartment all day. So it's like, I feel like I should be getting into more of a routine, but I can't because everything is feeling so intangible. There's another thing that's noticeably different this semester for many students during this pandemic. It's the way colleges are proctoring quizzes and tests. For Elena, that student at Texas State, every week she has a quiz for her marketing class that uses an automated tool called Proctorio to monitor her every move as she takes it to make sure she isn't cheating. Specifically, the system can watch quiz takers through their webcam, and then its algorithm flags if they do something like talk to someone off camera who could be helping them. The idea is that the professor will then go back and rewatch parts of this that were flagged to see if it constitutes a violation. Like that Pretoria thing is like you have to find a place that nobody is around. It's like a very quiet environment because like I don't want to be like accused of cheating when like that was not even the case. Like one time my mom was walking down the stairs and, she, and you could hear like, no, see, no, see. she was screaming for me. And I was like, no, I'm taking at this. And she's like, oh, sorry. <laughs> and then she just like went back upstairs and I just like was so funny. <laughs> like it's too invasive because like it makes me more nervous. So I'm just like, make sure that you don't look anywhere else. <laughs> make sure you're just focusing on your screen because if like, if they see that you look somewhere else or if they hear a noise, uh, they will notify the professor and like uh, say that you're cheating. Uh, wow, that, so you that feel just, accused by the machine all the time, like, or like. Yeah, I'm just like, I swear I'm not looking anywhere else. I'm just doing my test. But then it like, sometimes like I read out loud, so I'm like, ah. They're not thinking I'm saying it aloud to somebody. <laughs> I don't know. Like, they're just like, I think, like, our students may go a bunch of scenarios on their heads about that. Wow. So, does that, do you think that distracts from your actual focus on the material during your test? Oh, for sure, because I'm worried about not being accused of <laughs> cheating. She's not alone. Students across the country have pushed back since the pandemic against the rise of these automated proctoring tools. At dozens of college campuses, students have signed petitions calling for their colleges to ban the use of Proctorio. At the City University of New York, for example, more than 28,000 people have signed a petition calling for the ban, saying the software is watching them through their webcams and tracking their keystrokes. Quote, CUNY colleges must create solutions to test-taking that does not violate students' right to privacy, especially in their own homes, the petition reads. I reached out to Mike Olson, the CEO of Proctorio, to give him a chance to respond to these complaints. Well, the first thing I'd say is, is I, I feel really bad for students who are, who are going to universities today during the pandemic. I would have been so upset and disappointed um, if I couldn't go on campus. Um, and I think that's where we're seeing a lot of this, right? A lot of our original test takers are students who are full-time employed. They have children. They, only, they can never go to campus. It's just impossible. They got to take their exams at 3 a.m., right? That's the normal demographic that we serve. And now, because everyone's forced online, they're forced off campus, they're being forced into this product. And, and I think it's the forcing is, is, is more of the fact that they can't go on campus, right? Because it's just not possible. Um, and I think that that starts to stir up a lot of these emotions. 
And then when you have an exam, there's, there's obvious stress involved with an exam and then boom, you get hit with this. And, and many times institutions probably didn't communicate this correctly uh, to users before they, they enrolled in classes or before they enrolled in a specific course. And so our goal and what we've been learning over the last six to nine months is to do a better job when it comes to onboarding. You know, getting the institution the right materials. There's a lot of misconceptions about Proctorio. I mean, for one, for one example, you mentioned keystrokes. We don't do that. There are other vendors who do that. They, they take biometric readings on keystrokes, and, and we don't do that. that that's silly stuff. Um, so I think getting the institutions the right materials so that they can get that in front of the students um, so they know exactly what is and what isn't being collected, what the software can and what the software can't do. And then also just ethical situations um, and, and describing, look, th these are the circumstances you should be using proctoring software. Here are the circumstances you shouldn't. And when you do use it, here's, it, it's more than just best practices. It now starts to go into ethical, right? You, you, you start to say, well, do you need, you know, to, to have the video webcam recording? There's a lot of students in situations today where they, they live with multiple people or they're stuck with multiple people. They can't have a quiet room. There's, there's a lot of things going on that, that exist today that didn't exist before. I told Mike about Elena's experience with the software and how stressed it made her feel. And I think that that comes again back to implementation. It, it's, it's half on us, half on the institution. Um, we intentionally, when, when we started, there were similar products to ours, similar products that removed humans and, and went with more machine-based. Um, and what they would do is like flash, like, like flash flags. Like you looked away and it would say, look back at the screen. It was like, oh, oh my goodness, this, this is ridiculous, right? Um, what, what we decided to do is take the approach. You can even hide the video feed, right? So we took the approach of like, look, we're trying to be as, as, as little invasive and as, as little, you know, distractor. It, it, we're, just, we're just sitting here doing the things that we told you ahead of time we were going to restrict and then recording the things we told you ahead of time we're going to record, but just ignore us, right? And, and so that's the approach we took. And I think we can do a better job um, through the, the orientation process of, of using it and, and maybe explaining that. Because look, the, the red flags that they're thinking might happen might not. Um, look, in, instructors specifically, you know, set what they're looking for. And so although the system is always recording the microphone, they maybe know that situation or they just don't care. And, and they turn the, the, the flagging off for the microphone, right? And so it doesn't necessarily mean just because your mom came in um, and, and, and started talking to you. I mean, it's the other reason we intentionally built software that has the instructors and has the institution making decisions, right? When, when those other third parties get involved, they were the ones making decisions, hey, tell your mom to get out of the room, you know, weird stuff like that. We, we don't do that. And, and the hope is that the instructor would go in and, and, you know, say, okay, I want to see moments where they were talking to somebody and they, they'll see the mom come in and they'll ask, hey, do you want to drink a water or whatever the, the situation happened? And, and, and the goal there is so that the faculty says, oh, that, that, that's fine. That's not a big deal. Um, and, and that's what we're going for. So I think we, we should do a better job communicating to the test takers ahead of time, like what's actually happening and how it's going to be reviewed, and then give best practices, of course, to, to the faculty. Because if a faculty sees an instance, like I said, where they got to get up, right? Like they want to know when students left the room, faculty shouldn't just take that on the surface. They should go watch that incident. And, and what more than likely would happen is just before the students bouncing in their chair, just like, I got to pee, and they get up and go pee. That should be fine. There, there shouldn't be a problem there. And so that, that's the hope.
by, by putting it back on the institution to make those sort of decisions. I was curious what Rachel Davenport, the Texas State lecturer, thought of Proctorio. And it turns out she piloted the system this summer. And she saw plenty of innocent moments that were flagged as suspicious. I've seen it. I've seen it all. <laughs> I saw um, a student over the summer arguing with her dad who walked into the room. Uh, I saw a student arguing with her boyfriend who came home unexpectedly. Uh, students talk out loud to themselves. They yell at the dog to stop barking. But it's, you know, it just flags it. And I look and I say, oh, that's fine. And I just move on. So I think, um, you know, I, I hope that professors are communicating with their students that, look, yeah, there's going to be flags and I just see it and it's fine and we move on. It's not a big deal. Before trying Proctorio, she had been using a different system called Examity that uses human proctors who watch over a webcam in real time. She had never heard of these petitions against Proctorio. And it's interesting because I, this is, I think because I started with Examity and the live proctoring, when Proctorio came on board, I felt like my students breathed a sigh of relief. <laughs> so I, I a little bit think like, of course, if you're used to nothing, um, anything is going to feel invasive. Um, but if you're used to the live proctoring and then you, you kind of are downgraded to this much more chill system, it probably feels better. I, I understand like students not wanting that invasion. Um, but I, I do think that we're all in sort of a tricky situation um, because who, which students do you, are you, are trustworthy? Probably most of them, probably the vast majority. But what about the handful that aren't? And how do you how do you work around that? So that's what homework and tests look like. But are students learning? I actually got um, the results of the first exam back, and. This time, now that I have 200 students online and our classes are through Zoom, I didn't have a way to proctor it. So I made it open note. Now I did put in a lot of um, kind of features to help make it not so simple. And the results are compared to the same class last year that was face-to-face, this semester, they scored four percentage points higher. So they did great. I'm really proud of them. I don't know if they're learning as much on Zoom, but, um, and, and maybe just having notes available to them made up for that. But I think they're actually really doing great. I think my students are working hard and, um, and they did really well on the exam. I'm really proud of them. Students, meanwhile, say they are learning more in some classes than others. And not everyone is feeling good about their progress. But yeah, I do not feel I'm learning as much as I would if I was in class. For Joseph at Purdue, his courses remind him of free online courses that he's taken. These massive open online courses or MOOCs. How different is this from any other like online class like a MOOC or Coursera edX, right? I've taken some courses through those platforms. You're watching online lectures. Your primary interaction is through discussion posts, right? But those aren't really that meaningful. I mean, you could make it meaningful, but it's it's difficult to make it meaningful. And you have very limited feedback. Like that's essentially most of my courses are, are like that. Not all of them. I have some like project-based 
uh, courses like my data science uh, course where I'm working with a corporate partner uh, and the one of my physics courses is uh, going really well, the, the statics course. But a lot of them just seem straight out of like edX, Coursera. I mean, they, they could probably even do it better with, with the, the video content. So not to completely throw professors and instructors under the bus. I know that they had very limited time to prepare for all of this, but this is just the situation that we're in, like, but that's free and this costs money. <laughs> so Natalie at Chapman University is a pre-med planning to become a doctor. She worries most about whether she's learning enough in her labs. I have to say, if any of my classes could go back to in-person, I would just love if my labs went back because those are so much more hands-on. In my physiology lab, we're doing clinical work. We're learning how to take blood pressure. We're learning how to do EKG reading. I mean, just yesterday, we were in the class looking at graphs of action potentials versus time and trying to decipher, okay, what part of the heartbeat is occurring while we're reading this part of the graph. And not being able to do that in person was so difficult because when you set up an EKG, you have to palpate the upper chest area to find where to place the electrodes. So not being able to do that in person made it really difficult to be able to retain the information. And now I think on our lab exam, we're going to be expected to be able to verbally explain where we would palpate to find the correct placement for the electrodes. But there's just nothing like being able to do that in person and really gain experiential knowledge. So that's the state of learning for our diarists around the country. But we also wanted to check back in with a few people who left us with kind of a cliffhanger last time. Starting with Josh Friesen at Syracuse, whose campus had been undergoing a whole different kind of testing. And the big thing on campus is COVID testing because during Labor Day weekend, people went out and brought back some COVID to the campus. So the last two weeks, we've been doing a lot of testing and I think we've contained pretty well. There were three cases in the building next to mine. We shared a dining hall. So that floor went on to quarantine while the entire rest of the floor tested. They all tested negative. Then the next day, everybody in both my building and the one with the cases, we all had to go get tested. And those came back on Thursday night. And they, at least for everyone that I've talked to, were negative. But life on campus this semester is full of unexpected glitches in trying to maintain these health protocols. And we had like a small fire on on Wednesday. Someone like burnt some popcorn or something. I don't know. And so we all, this was before our fire drill, which we're still having sometime this week. We all went to like the same little spot because we didn't know that there was like, we had, we have something implemented for each floor to like go to a different spot to limit exposure to COVID or anything during these times. But that didn't happen because we hadn't had our drill yet. So that Friday, which was yesterday, we all had to, my entire building had to get tested again. So the day after our 
results came back from earlier in the week. We all had to get tested again. So we're waiting on those, but seeing as our initial round was pretty good, I think we're all good there. And sometimes things that have nothing to do with COVID can interrupt learning. For the last episode, I mentioned that I've started playing volleyball, uh, which is a pastime that's pretty important to me in terms of staying healthy and liberating my mind from the sometimes awful demands of academic life. That's David Pena-Guzman, a professor at San Francisco State, who is teaching online this semester, and he's doing that from Paris, where his partner lives. I joined a tournament, uh, the first tournament that happened in Paris, um, and I had a bit of a freak accident that culminated in a scratched cornea. So I, I ended up with a nine millimeter nail scratch in the middle of my eye. And that really brought my my teaching and my research to a halt for a few days. Um, and so this pastime that I've been that I'd been looking forward to for months um, totally decommissioned me and uh, caused me to get a little bit behind on my teaching. Um, and it just reminded me of just how vulnerable we are to the un predictable to the unforeseen to to the random and uh, over the last several days i've been dealing with a good amount of of eye pain but corneas heal very quickly and so now i'm back on my feet um but at the same time paris um and in fact several areas in france have decided to close down again uh, because of COVID and because of data showing an increase in um, cases, they have decided to close down again all pools, gymnasiums, um, meeting halls. And so it means that I had this this opening of about a week where I was able to to go back to life as normal. And then I was first taken out by by a freak accident concerning my eye. And then a few days later... The whole country followed. So no more volleyball for me for the foreseeable future. The biggest challenge we heard about last episode was from Marjorie Blen, a student at San Francisco State. She had just transferred into the university this semester from community college. And she's so frustrated with the online teaching she's getting that she has been considering taking time off from her studies. A moment during a tutoring session this last week helped her make her decision. And on Tuesday, I I um, asked for a tutor, and it was interesting, right, because it was for my sociology global immigration class. And when I got on the on Zoom with the tutor, and I was sharing my document with her for this paper we have due, she just seemed really out of it, like she really didn't want to do what she was doing. And then she looked really exhausted. And then as we were doing our paper, she was just like, oh, what else do you need? I was like, well, I kind of need your, like, you know, your opinion, because obviously I need to do better in this paper than I did last time. And she just looked at me, oh, right, right. And I made a remark uh, in between the conversation that was like, oh, I was like, it's kind of hard to stay motivated, huh? She was like, yeah, I guess she's a grad student and she's taking psychology. And she's like, these were her exact words when I said that. She was like, yeah, I'm ready to quit, but I'm trying to hold on there. And it's interesting um, with that tutoring section session to see that I'm not the only one going through this. You know, I have this 
young girl that's in grad school at state and she's doing her psychology and she's just going really through it, you know, and she's living on campus and stuff like the little dorm area that they have there. Um, and I just, it just kind of, I wouldn't say it made me feel better because I feel really bad for her, but it kind of made me realize that I'm not alone in this situation. And I know I'm not alone, alone, but seeing someone, you know, that is, I, you can say like at a higher level of education, struggling as much as I'm struggling, it makes, puts it in perspective that, you know, you are not the only one and you can push through, you know, so that and by the way, the tutoring session wasn't really that helpful. Like she was really tired and exhausted and it lasted probably like 20 to 25 minutes the most. I don't know. I think next semester I'm for sure going to take less. It's, if it's for sure that we're not going to go back on campus at all, I will probably take only two to three classes at most because I cannot do another semester like this with full-time you know four classes full-time student and not have the resources or the motivation or the environment that I need to succeed so therefore I have made that decision I know that that's gonna affect my financial aid it's gonna affect a lot of things but my sanity my mind you know needs it and maybe I'll take some summer classes make up for those classes that I didn't take you know so we'll see we will see because the goal this semester was Oh, well, my academic goal was to get my bachelor's in sociology with a minor in criminal justice. But that might actually change because of the lack of resources and everything we're going through. So, but that is the plan. We'll work on it. I'm thinking to myself, this semester, you this month, you'll do better. Be more organized. Don't freak out when things don't work out the way they don't everybody's going through this. You're not the only one. I'm pretty sure my teachers are going through it as well. On our next installment, we look at students who are just kind of ghosting, not showing up or doing any work, and what professors are doing to try to reach out to them. This has been the It Search Podcast. If you like the show, we hope you'll subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. This episode was produced by me, Jeff Young. And you can find me online at J.R. Young. Editing this episode by Rob McGinley-Myers. Thanks to the students and professors who are taking the time to send in diaries and share their experiences. Rachel Davenport, Deb Nichols, Sabina Brunswicker, David Peña-Guzman, Peter Sands, Luz Elena Anaya-Chong, Joseph Ching, Marjorie Blinn, Adrian Davis, Natalie Ricciardi, and Josh Friesen. You can read more about all the diarists on our show page at edsurge.com. This podcast series is supported by a reporting fellowship from the Education Writers Association. Music by Ruvel and Mole Rider. Thanks also to Sasha Aslanian. And thanks, as always, to Tony Wan, managing editor of EdSurge. We'll be back next week with more on how education is changing. Thanks for listening, and be well.